Welcome to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ with Minister Chris Palmer. Bernie Church of Christ meets for worship each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. You can find Bernie Church of Christ at 1 Upper Balconies Road, right next to Starbucks. Now, with today's message, here's Minister Chris Palmer. Good to be together. Today is a special day and an awesome day to be together. I want to thank you to everybody who's joining us here as we uh, join Christians from all around the world who are celebrating the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Easter morning uh, comes with a range of emotions. Uh, I think the last song that we sang is a really good illustration of that, uh, that, that range of emotions that, that comes, from, uh, comes for us on this day, as I would imagine also came for all of those who are closest with Jesus on that first Resurrection Sunday. On on one hand, there is this humble reverence and a sorrowful heart as we remember the cross and the great sacrifice. But then right alongside that is this joyful excitement and this sincere gratitude that springs from the depth of our souls. This is a special day. It's a day for reflection and recognition and renewal. It's the day that death lost, not just once, but forever. God's kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the last several weeks, we've been talking about Simon Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends, an apostle. Peter is the rock. And this morning, I want to try to look at the resurrection through his eyes. What was it like from Peter's perspective? What did it mean to Peter to see and touch the risen Savior? And whatever it meant to Peter, does it still mean the same to us today? Let's do a quick recap on Peter's story thus far. The first time we saw Peter, he was fishing, and this was back when he was only called Simon. Fishing wasn't going well one day, and Jesus climbed into his boat and climbed into his life, and they went fishing together. And he caught this amazing haul of fish, so much so that the nets began to tear and the boats began to sink. And there in the boat, Peter pleads with Jesus, Luke 5, 8, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus invited him then to follow and to become a fisher of men. Next, Simon walked on the stormy water with Jesus. It was a test of his fear versus his faith. Later, Jesus renames him Peter, for he is solid and bold and endearing, although a little hard-headed at times. And Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and so Jesus calls him to be a leader and a servant for the kingdom that Christ is building. But Jesus knew that he wouldn't be with Peter forever, not in person at least. And so immediately after the name change, Jesus, in no uncertain terms, predicts his own coming death. Well, Peter doesn't like this, and Peter doesn't approve, and so he pulls the master aside and he rebukes Jesus. And Jesus responds, Matthew 16, 23, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Before long, Jesus' premonitions are coming to fruition. 
And there we see Peter with Jesus, James, and John in the garden. And Jesus asks him, I just want you to keep watch. Will you join me in praying? For my betrayer is near. But it's dark and it's late and they're tired and maybe they're a little bit doubtful that what Jesus is saying is actually going to happen. And so Peter dozes off a couple times. That is, until Judas, along with his angry mob, arrive with weapons drawn looking for the rabbi. And still, Peter, the bold and dramatic rock, pulls out his sword and starts swinging. But this is not Jesus' plan for his kingdom. So he stops the violence, he cleans up Peter's mess, and he willingly goes with his captors. Confused and scared, the disciples flee. But Peter is not far behind. He settles down around a campfire near where Jesus' preliminary and scandalous trial is being held. And Jesus' presence is a big deal. He's a popular guy. And so by proxy, so is Peter. And he's quickly recognized as an associate of Jesus. But Peter denies it. He denies that he even knows Christ. Once, twice, three times. And then right on cue, just as Jesus had foreshadowed, the rooster crows, and Peter is struck with guilt. Maybe the whole world didn't know, but Jesus knew, and he was the only person that Peter really cared about. And so Peter runs. He flees. He runs out in tears. Where he went, what he did, I don't know. But he is forced to live with the choice that he made. He cannot escape from himself and the mistake he made as he chose to abandon Jesus. What can be done? Jesus is gone now. Will he ever be free and whole again? Meanwhile, Jesus' passion continues on. Jesus is beaten and he's abused. The Son of God, perfect and powerful and peaceful. And the one man who could stop it, Pontius Pilate, picks the angry mob over the innocent teacher, even though it would seem that he is greatly conflicted by it. He asks Jesus, John 19.10, he says, Do you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you. And Jesus, a master of reframing and recalibrating how we see ourselves, responds, you would have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. And Pilate seems to respect this. He seems to have a sense that if Jesus didn't want to be there, then he wouldn't be there. Now, Pilate doesn't seem to see this as defiant, and so the very next verse says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the pressure from the public was too strong. And Jesus is sent to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And between two thieves, Jesus is nailed to a Roman cross. And there's a sign above his head that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It's written in Greek, Latin, 
and Aramaic so that everybody who passes by can understand. Now, maybe this is mockery, but I think maybe this is Pilate's last effort to display his disapproval, to distance himself and to try to wash his hands of Jesus' blood. The Apostle John is nearby, along with Jesus' mother and some of the other women who are important, who followed Jesus' ministry. Jesus blesses John with an incredibly high honor. He says, I want you to take care of my mom now that I'm gone, or once I'm gone. Not long after he, after that, he proclaims, it is finished, and he breathes his last. He was laid in a borrowed tomb, and his body is prepared with spices, aloes, and linen cloths, and there his body waited, still and quiet. No news, no drama, no commotion, just a long, silent Sabbath day. And in the midst of all of that, I wonder, where was Peter? Who was he with? What was he doing? What was going on in his head? Had it all been a hoax? Was Jesus not who he said he was? Had they lost? Had they been deceived? Could maybe Peter have done something if he had intervened rather than denying that he even knew who Jesus was? Oh, and what about those who knew him and associated him, who knew that he was connected with Christ? Was, was he in danger? Would he be next? And how would he ever find freedom from the guilt that he was wearing? John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now this other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, this is the, the disciple John. Now, this is how John often refers to himself in his own gospel. Where did Mary go after discovering that the tomb was empty? To Simon Peter and to John two of his closest disciples. And this tells us something really important. Peter could have run further. He could have been in hiding. He could have given up the cause altogether. Now, he may have been confused. He may have been scared. He may have been heartbroken, disenchanted, disillusioned. But Mary knows where to find him, and she knows that he would want to know that the tomb was empty. And that tells us something. It tells us that Peter hadn't quit. He might not know what to do next, but he's still hanging on to hope of something. And so Peter and John, when they hear from Mary, they take off running. Now, it's funny, John makes it a point in his gospel to note that he is faster than Peter is. John gets to the tomb first, he says, and he gets there and he gets to the opening and he freezes in the doorway and he gazes inside. And when Peter finally arrives, his momentum carries him all the way in, and he stands inside the empty tomb, bewildered. Where is Jesus' body? They see the linen cloths laying there, but no Jesus. And it says that John saw and he believed. But 
there is no mention of Peter's inner thoughts. Just simply that they left and they went back home. Now Mary is still standing outside the tomb, weeping, and she is the first to see and speak with the risen Savior. And again, it says that she ran and reported back to the disciples, John 20, 18, I have seen the Lord. And I wonder, how was her account received? Did they believe her? Did they doubt her? 2,000 years removed from the situation, we have maybe lost touch with how insane and incredible her, her claim could have come across. I have seen and spoken with a man that we all know died three days ago. There had to be some questions. There had to be some doubt. Maybe there is even some disregarding. But even if there was some shred of belief in the group, what do you do about it? What do you do? Do you go out searching, trying to find him? Do you go and tell everybody based solely on Mary's testimony? What do you do? So the disciples decided to stay in. And they lock the doors because it's still dangerous out there, they think. Nobody in, nobody out. We sit here and we wait for something to happen. And on that same day, even with the doors locked, Jesus appears before the disciples saying, John 20, 21, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. Here it is, the first orders, the first words of instruction. Here's what I want you to do. I am sending you. And this is good news. This is big. Jesus in the flesh, standing there, speaking in front of his followers, proof before their very eyes that the master has returned. And there is a next step. You're listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. The Bernie Church of Christ is located at 1 Upper Balconies Road, right next to Starbucks. You can join the Bernie Church of Christ for online or in-person worship each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Now, with the rest of today's message, here's Minister Chris Palmer. I am sending you. The mission, the story, isn't over. But there's no mention of Peter. Now we can assume that he was there, but there is no indication of a big meaningful conversation, no addressing of the big elephant in the room, you know, the circumstances surrounding his rejection of Jesus. Something in the story still feels unresolved. Jesus appears again, this time specifically for the Apostle Thomas's benefit. Thomas touches the marks and the scars where the nails and the spear were on Jesus, and it says that he believed. But this is eight days later, and there's still no mention of Peter or the tense situation that he has with Jesus. Maybe you can relate with that. Have you ever had some anxious energy around some relationship that's in distress? Maybe you still see each other periodically. Maybe you even share a few small words, but nothing deep, nothing like it used to be. And you just want to break the ice, that awkward silence. You just want to apologize and do everything you can to try to make it right. 
but the right words or the right opportunity just aren't coming. We fear, how, how, how are they going to respond? Are they going to be angry? Are they going to be sad? Are they going to be dismissive or cold or passive? Well, we tend to assume the worst, right? So even though Peter may be at a loss for words, remember Jesus is still in control. And Jesus knows what's, what he's doing. So sometime later, Peter announces to the group, he says, I'm going fishing. And they say, we'll go with you. And I don't know if he's bored or, or, or maybe he's just going to do something that he enjoys or, or maybe he's planning on going back to a livelihood that he's familiar with and, and he's comfortable with. Uh, maybe they've just been sitting and waiting for more orders from Jesus that haven't come yet. And Peter's maybe a little stir-crazy. He needs to get out, get some fresh air. But for whatever reason, Peter's going fishing like he used to do. But this is no ordinary day of fishing. And some bits of this story may sound familiar. It says that they went out and they fished all night, but they didn't catch anything. Just like the first time that Jesus met Peter in Luke chapter 5, verse 5. And the men uh, are fishing, and, and there's some guy that they don't recognize, and he's on the shore, and he shouts out to him some advice, some tips about how they can be more successful in their fishing. He says, cast your nets on the right side of the boat. Kind of like that first time when Jesus told them to take their boats to deeper water in Luke 5.4. And they catch a huge amount of fish, 153 to be exact. And again, just like in Luke chapter 5. Except the first time, they catch so many fish that the nets tear. And John makes the point to say, but this time, the nets remained intact. It's John who first recognizes that the man on the shore is Jesus. But just like the empty, open tomb, it's Peter who does not think twice, and he dives right in, literally. And he swims to shore some 100 yards. It's the first time... The first time that Peter was blessed by this miraculous catch of fish, he begged Jesus. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But this time is different. A lot has changed between Jesus and Peter. And Jesus sees him, and he says, let's have breakfast. That's classic Jesus, right? Fellowship, sharing, relationship, it is part of his model. He could have started right with teaching and lessons, but he demonstrates the old saying that no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. They share a meal, and Jesus finally says to Simon Peter, hey, let's talk. Let's have that important talk. John chapter 21, verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. And again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, 
Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And there's a lot here in these three verses. First, do you, did, you, did you catch how Jesus addressed Peter? He calls him Simon, son of John, or Jonah. Now, this repeats the wording that Jesus used in Matthew 16, where Jesus first changed his name from Simon to Peter. But here, Jesus has reverted back to Simon, son of John. Maybe it's a test. Maybe he's asking, are you still Peter? Are you still my rock? Next, Peter acknowledges that Jesus knows everything. He knows all of his inner thoughts, his feelings, his motivations, and his past. The sin and the denial, the big elephant in the room. Jesus' first question of love is comparative. He says, do you love me more than all of these, more than all of them? And maybe this is a hint back to Peter's bold assertion that even though everyone else, all the other disciples were going to fall away, he promised he would not, Matthew 26, 33. But maybe it's also a hint that Peter has a greater need for Jesus' forgiveness. And finally, the repetition itself. Why ask three times? Well, the implication is that this mirrors Peter's three denials, three I love you's to offset the three I don't know him's. And this hurts Peter. As one commentator writes, Peter was not upset because Jesus questioned him three times, but because on the third occurrence, Jesus challenged his sincerity. It's as if Jesus is asking Peter, do you really mean it? We're not playing around anymore. I need to hear you say it. Do you love me? And this test from Jesus is a reflection of what's most important to him. See, you see, Peter was willing to fight. He was willing to kill. He was maybe even willing to die in the garden. Peter had followed. He'd listened. He'd learned. He'd watched Jesus. But now things are very different. Jesus has been to the cross and back, and he needs to know, Peter, do you love me? I don't know how much more I can show you that I love you. I've given everything. I wear the scars of sin on my body. I conquered death itself. I've proved and demonstrated my love as much as possible. Peter, is it enough? Is it enough for you? I wonder how would we answer that same question? What more could Jesus do to show us that he loves us? And if our answer is, yes, it is enough, then what comes next? Now, Jesus must have trusted Peter's authenticity because then he gives him a job to do, to go with his confession. He said, feed and tend to my sheep and my lambs, care for in every way my flock. Peter has gone from being a fisher of men to being a shepherd, the noble calling for a servant of Christ. Lead and nurture the rest of the family. And then Jesus says, John 21, 19, follow me. With this conversation, Peter reveals that the cross, Peter receives 
what the cross and the empty tomb are all about. Jesus took the pain and sin of the whole world on himself, in his innocent and undeserving body and his heart, so that he could demonstrate his love, even for sinners, even for his enemies, Romans 5. But death is only half of the exchange. His death takes away our death, and his love, or his life, gives us new life. As N.T. Wright explains, when Jesus rose again, God's whole new creation emerged from the tomb, introducing the world, a world of full, a world full of new potential and possibility. Indeed, precisely because part of that new possibility is for human beings themselves to be revived and renewed. The resurrection of Jesus doesn't leave us as passive, helpless spectators. We find ourselves lifted up, set on our feet, given new breath in our lungs, and commissioned to go and make new creation happen in the world. Peter received that. A whole new life, not just a new name, but a whole new being, restored, redeemed, and reconciled. Yes, he had sin and regret in his life, and all the good deeds in the world could not possibly erase that. But the death and the life of Jesus could. Only Christ could do that. And regardless of how bad Peter messed up, and he messed up bad, Jesus still says to him, if you're with me, I could use a guy like you to look after my sheep. Because at the end of the day, it all comes down to love. God's love for the world, the whole big world and each little individual. It is so enormous that he would die for the world. And his love is so enormous that death could not stop him. And for those who love him back, we are called to go love others. Thank you for listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. You can join the Bernie Church of Christ here on Bernie Radio each Sunday at 11 a.m. or for worship online or in person each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To learn more about the Bernie Church of Christ, please visit BernieChurchOfChrist.org or call 830-249. Two six eight five. That is eight three zero two four nine two six eight five. Thank you once again for listening to the Bernie Church of Christ.